Two bishops once met in a bar. <laughs> I expect it wasn't actually a bar, but it makes for a better story. It was in the second century. The bishops were called Polycarp and Marcion. When Marcion asked Polycarp if he knew who he was, Polycarp replied, I know you, the firstborn of Satan. We know about their meeting from the writings of another bishop, Irenaeus, who was also originally from Turkey. Marcion held some beliefs rather different from those of orthodox bishops, such as Irenaeus and Polycarp. Among, among other things, Marcion believed that the, teaching, the, the teachings of Jesus clashed irreconcilably with the picture of God conveyed by the Jewish scriptures, with what we call the Old Testament, though that title hadn't yet come into use, and for that matter, there wasn't yet a New Testament. When Polycarp called Marcion the firstborn of Satan, somebody like me who is passionate about the Old Testament may be forgiven for a high five. Indeed, I am tempted to sympathize with the views of Serinthus, another Turkish theologian. Serinthus was too enthusiastic about the Torah. He taught that believers in Jesus were obliged to keep the law. And Polycarp, again, describes how John, the disciple of the Lord, was one day going to bathe at Ephesus. John saw Serinthus there, and he rushed out of the bathhouse without bathing, exclaiming, let's fly, lest even the bathhouse falls down, because Serinthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. Many Christians are sympathetic, sensitive to the issue that Marcion raises the question whether the teachings of Jesus clash with the Jewish Scriptures. For the final class in each course I teach, I invite students to tell me the major questions they still have. And they regularly ask about fitting together differences between the Testaments. Things like loving your enemies over against killing your enemies. Jesus acting in love over against God acting in wrath. Worshipping without outward rites over against worship that emphasizes sacrifice. A relationship with God based on grace over against one based on law. Today and tomorrow I shall talk about some of these kinds of questions. But I also aim to reverse the direction of the questioning and consider some of the ways in which the Old Testament interrogates us. People commonly were, operate with the working hypothesis that Jesus brought a revelation from God that went significantly beyond the revelation in the Old Testament. There are two basic comments I want to make about that assumption. One is that the chief significance of Jesus does not lie in a revelation that he brought. It lies in who he was, what he did, and what happened to him, and what he will do. The other basic comment is that he didn't reveal new truths about what it meant to be God, except the fact that God is more complicated than people would previously have thought. Three persons and one God. So people's reaction to Jesus was not, wow, we never knew that. What Jesus did was brought a concrete embodiment of who God had already told Israel that he was, and had already shown Israel that he was. And Jesus thereby provoked Jews and Gentiles into an ultimate rejection of God. It was a rejection that God turned into the ultimate means whereby his relationship with his people could be affirmed and healed and restored. Which also fits the way that he had related to Israel 
in the Old Testament. But further, he opened the way for the news about what he'd been done, uh, about what he had been done to be shared with the Gentile world as something that could bring you the same blessing. It says here, remember the world. So I'm glad that I've got that and I've only got to page two uh, of what I've got to say. And that concern with bringing the gospel to the whole world was in keeping with God's original intention as expounded in the Old Testament. And he established his own authority to be the person who would ultimately judge the world as a whole. Jesus did not teach anything that was very new. The New Testament thus doesn't bring much significant change to the dynamics of spirituality. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, it was from the Old Testament that he took his clues for evaluating Satan's suggestions. When he, when he went on to teach people about the blessings that God wanted to give them, he took his raw material from the Old Testament. Every one of his Beatitudes involves recycling something from the Old Testament, mainly from Isaiah or Psalms. When he then teaches people about God's ethical expectations, he describes himself, as we saw just now in that passage from Matthew, as filling out the Torah. So if we ignore Old Testament spirituality, we are in danger of costly loss. Tomorrow I'll talk about some aspects of worship and prayer. Today I want to talk about some aspects of a relationship with God that counters spirituality in a broader sense about faith and love and hope. I shan't try to teach comprehensively uh, about those topics, but to take up one or two aspects of each. To begin with faith, four observations. First, one of the popular myths about the Old Testament is that it bases life with God on works or law rather than on grace and faith. That is indeed a myth. It's one of the ways in which people let themselves be misled by the New Testament. It's not that the New Testament actually says that this is the Old Testament's own teaching, but people read the New Testament that way. Ironically, the, the, the New Testament's concern is with Christians who insist that Christians have to keep the Torah, and particularly that Gentile Christians have to do so. And that insistence compromises the nature of the Gospel. In opposing that insistence, Paul knows that he nevertheless has to show that his gospel fits in with the Old Testament. In other words, he's got to show that his gospel is scriptural. With further irony, whereas our concern is with whether the Old Testament is consistent with the gospel, in the New Testament, the question is whether the gospel is consistent with the Old Testament. Because writers such as Paul know that if they can't show that, they're in trouble. The second observation about faith is that in the Old Testament, faith is a matter of trust. Here's another irony. Jewish theologian Martin Buber drew a contrast between faith in Judaism and faith in Christianity. Christian faith, he said, is about believing that certain things are true. It's believing certain doctrines. Jewish faith is about trusting in a person. Now, I imagine we'd all want to say that Christian faith is about trusting in a person, but apparently we can, we can give that other impression. 
And of course, believing that and believing in are both important. So Old Testament faith means believing that Yahweh is the only God, but it also means trusting in that God. The third observation links with that one. Over the past decade or two, Christians in the United States have got very concerned about violence and about violence in the Bible. I imagine that we are concerned about violence because we are a nation who's, that is founded on violence in several senses. And it's been noted that books such as Isaiah and Psalms link with modern convictions about nonviolence. But it's worth observing how they do so. Most of the time, Israel as a people and individual Israelites could do little about oppressive violence shown towards them. And a prophet such as Isaiah urges Judah not to try to do anything about it and not to go to war. But the reason for this stance and the ungirding of it is not a conviction that violence is wrong. Neither Old Testament nor New Testament suggest that violence is wrong. Rather, the point in Isaiah and in the Psalms is that the foundation of life for the people of God is faith or trust. Let God look after the violence. I shall spend longer on the fourth observation about faith. It's about the link between faith and memory. Remembering is of key importance in the Old Testament. For instance, we need to take account of the importance for spirituality of remembering the story on which the faith is based. The first indicator of the importance of uh, memory uh, that it, in the Bible is the fact that Scripture is dominated by the story of what God did with Israel over the centuries and what God did in Jesus and in the early church. They're things we're invited to remember. But there's something important about the way the Scriptures go about that remembering and encouraging to remember. They tell the story on which the faith is based in such a way as to write into it the story's significance for the people who tell the story and the people who listen to it. A while ago, my wife and I went to hear two singer-songwriters who were Christians, but who were playing in an ordinary Hollywood club. One of them had made a song out of the story of Jesus stilling the storm. But the song simply paraphrased the story without making any point of contact with 21st century California. The other sang a song about hope that she introduced by telling us that her aim in her singing was to give people hope, but she made no reference to the fact that Jesus is the reason for our hope. It seemed to us that expressing the gospel in song required something that required the strength of retelling with the strength of contemporary linkage. Not just retelling and not just contemporary application, but the two combined. And that's what the remembering in the scriptures does. Often the study of theology drives you into just the first of those. It's just the inv investigation of something that happened historically. And you may then live your life on a wholly other basis, on the basis of the natural instincts of someone in the United States in 2014, which you assume a Christian. Which means you end up in the same place as the other singer-songwriter, who is more obviously conforming to her culture. 
it's so easy for spirituality to conform to our culture. We need the application of our memory to the story on which our faith is based, to rescue us from the concerns that we have because of the context in which we live. Remember the story on which your faith is based. Remember the way God has related to you before. The Psalms do that. They often talk about being under attack. And Psalm 3, for instance, starts by talking about the way that people are saying to one another, God's not, God, God's not going to rescue him. And part of the trouble with listening to people saying that is that it's exactly what you're thinking. So you have to get into an argument with yourself about that statement. And one way that psalm gets into the argument with the self is talking about the way things have been in the past, in the person's own experience. The psalm gets you to recall how you've known in the past what it was like to call out to God and to have God respond. The psalmist speaks as one who has known what it's like to go to bed not knowing whether you may get killed in the night, but then to wake up in the morning alive and well. And he goes on to remember how he, he has not had to smash his enemies on the jaw. He's been able to watch God do so. He can turn the other cheek and can pray for God's deliverance with confidence. It's been said that there is no biblical command as persistent as the command to remember. It's an overstatement, but it's not much of an overstatement. But you do have to remember the right things. Memory is selective. We have to train our memories to be selective in a wholesome way. An alcoholic once told me that alcoholics are inclined to remember the good things about drinking, and they have to be, to be trained to remember the bad things about drinking. Remember the obligations that the past places upon you. Remembering of, is of key importance to living a good life, a holy life. While the Old Testament sometimes urges people to forget the sufferings of the past and the sins, sins of the past, it also recognizes that there's something to be said for remembering them. Israelites are urged to remember their oppression in Egypt so as to be able to take this experience into account in the way that they treat needy people. So it is with the shame of the past. Isaiah 54 promises Israel that, the, that they can now forget all their time of unfaithfulness and chastisement and humiliation. It's not going to be like that anymore. But Ezekiel also recognizes that there's something to be said for remembering one's sin and one's shame. There are one or two sins in my life that I still especially remember and that I'm ashamed of, even though I know that they're forgiven. But the memory holds me back from committing those sins again. And then remember that God remembers the Bible's first explicit reference to remembering refers to God's remembering. God remembered Noah, says Genesis. And then God promised, I will remember my covenant between me and you. 
the story of Hannah, which is one of my absolute favorite stories in the entire Bible, shows how prayer involves appealing to God's capacity to remember. When we human beings make commitments, it's easy for us to put them out of mind later. And we may think that we are right to do so. The classic example is that of marriage. When half the people in our culture who make a lifelong commitment to someone else realize that they can't keep it, that they have to go back on it. One of the problems about being God is that you can't act in that way. God remembers. God cannot finally forget Israel. God is still committed to the Jewish people and still committed to the church and still committed to you and me despite the way that we fail to keep our side of the commitment. You may say amen. You may say it with conviction. Therefore, Israel can pray in Isaiah 64, don't remember waywardness forever. And part of God's response in Isaiah 65 is to say that the former troubles will have been put out of mind. They will have been hidden from my eyes, says God. Because here I am creating a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered. They will not come to mind. God has forgotten the sins that led to the exile and the trouble that those sins led to. God's own memory is selective. God's mind is now all on the future. God will forget the nasty aspects of the past and give people a new future. And maybe the fact that God remembers is the most important aspect of the link between spirituality and faith and memory. Yes, it's important that we remember the story on which the faith is based. It's important that we remember the way God has related to us ourselves in the past. It's important that we remember the obligations that the past places on us. But it's most important that God remembers, which is in small ways a solemn fact, but in big ways an encouraging fact. Second, love. Near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, just after that passage that we read just now, Jesus notes that the people of old were told not to murder or commit adultery and to love their neighbors but hate their enemies. Not to do those things. I tell you, he says, that we should avoid the inner attitude that finds expression in murder or adultery and we should love our enemies. Western Christians often take his words as an indication that his ethical ideals are higher than the Old Testament's. But actually, the Old Testament already recognized the importance of inner attitude as well as outward act. Job's account of his life in Job 31 is a systematic exposition of this awareness. Joseph embodies the Sermon on the Mount in his forgiveness of his brothers. Turning the other cheek was not a new idea in the New Testament. Jesus' blessing on peacemakers doesn't contrast with the Torah and the prophets. It evokes the way Israel does its best to negotiate a friendly passage through Edomite territory on its way to the Promised Land. When Israel receives a militaristic response from Edom, it withdraws in order to go another way. 
being, being peacemakers was not, not, rather than war makers, was not a new, new idea in the New Testament. Jesus tells people not to hate their enemies, but there's no Old Testament exhortation to hate one's enemies. Indeed, Jesus himself is the only person in Scripture to tell anyone to hate anyone else. For that matter, there's no exhortation to hate one's enemies in any Jewish writings from Jesus' time that we know. So Jesus' reference to being encouraged to hate one's enemies is a bit of a puzzle. The context in which Leviticus urges people to love their neighbor indicates that the neighbor whom they are to love is the neighbor who is their enemy. Leviticus's own point is that loving one's neighbor implies loving one's enemy. Actually, people hardly need to be exhorted to love the neighbors with whom they get on. In his exhortation to love one's enemy, Jesus is bringing out the Torah's own implications. He's not setting forth expectations that contrast with the Torah's. Which is not surprising when, in that passage we read just now, Jesus declares that he's come to fulfill the Torah and the prophets, not to annul them. Fulfilling means filling out. Jesus is bringing out the meaning of the Torah and the prophets. Leviticus 19 implies loving one's enemy. Jesus makes the implication explicit. To anyone who knew the scriptures, there was nothing revolutionary or shocking in his expectation that one should love one's enemies. Though some people would no doubt find it offensive, as they do today. Of course, while there is love of enemies in the Old Testament, there is also hatred of enemies. But in the New Testament too, there is hatred of enemies such as the attitude that Paul expresses in 2 Thessalonians 1. Jesus makes a related point in responding to the classic Jewish question about the most important command in the Torah. His answer combines commands from the Torah about love for God and love for one's neighbor. He adds that the entirety of the Torah and the prophets hangs on those two imperatives. Everything in the Torah and the prophets is an exposition of love for God and love for neighbor. Jesus, therefore, offers an alternative to the postmodern instinct to ask whose interest is served by commands in the Torah and elsewhere. The, interpret the interpretive question he suggests is rather, how does any given command express love for God or love for one's neighbor? Alongside his words about fulfillment and about the twofold principle that underlies the entire Torah, a third command by Jesus on the interpretation of the Torah offers a further insight. He is again responding to a question, a question concerning divorce. The idea that a man may initiate a divorce doesn't fit in with Genesis 1 to 2, he says. How then does he understand that regulation about giving a woman a divorce certificate? It was because of your stubbornness that Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not like this. So here too, Jesus is not introducing a new and higher standard than the standard of the Torah. He's analyzing the diversity of levels within the Torah itself. The regulation about divorce certificates stands in tension with Genesis because it makes allowance for human stubbornness. But in keeping with Jesus' other command about, comment about love, the regulation about divorce is also an expression of love because it gives a woman some means of establishing her status. 
She can't simply be thrown out by a husband who's tired of her. Jesus challenges his disciples to show a righteousness exceeding that of the Pharisees and scholars. And the discussion of divorce suggests what might be involved. It means not taking advantage of regulations in the Torah that make it possible to evade the Torah's highest demands. The problem of whose interest is being served is not a problem within the text, it's a problem within, within interpreters. The text needs to be interpreted not in my own interests, but as an expression of love. Augustine's principle that the test of interpretation is whether it tends to build up the twofold love of God and neighbor is not merely a principle for the application of the text, but a principle for its exegesis. So Jesus calls people to the highest, the most visionary standards within the Torah. Yet he's not, not rigorous in the stance he takes. He recognizes that not everyone can accept it. Indeed, he himself does not seek to implement a standard that matches how things were at the beginning. There are positive aspects to his attitude to women, but he includes no women among the twelve disciples, and the Gospels do not describe him as calling any women to follow him. He does not take the egalitarian approach that is implicit in Genesis 1 and 2. His practice, then, and his attitude to the Torah suggests a way of handling some troubling data within the New Testament. The household codes point to areas of life where the New Testament has lower standards than the Old Testament. There is no expectation in the Old Testament that wives should be silent when people gather for worship. And only the New Testament says that wives should obey their husbands. There was apparently reason for allowing such exhortations to have a place in the New Testament. They illustrate the way in which the New Testament, like the Old Testament, makes allowance for human hardness of hearts. What's, what such data in the New Testament suggest is that we should not assume that the teaching of the Old Testament is outdated by that of the New. Both Testaments are resources for the community's understanding of God's expectations. Third, hope. In the course of telling Jesus' story and working out its implications, the New Testament does make some affirmations that supplement what people could know from the Old Testament. The main one is that Sheol is not the end for humanity. At the end, all humanity is going to be raised from death in order to enjoy resurrection life or to go to hell, says the New Testament. Those beliefs don't come in the Old Testament, though they were already Jewish beliefs in Jesus' day. So they test, but they don't disprove my claim that Jesus didn't say much about God or about human destiny that people could reasonably have rejected on the basis that it was novel. Alongside this truth about resurrection and hell is the way the New Testament assumes the existence of Satan. While the Old Testament does presuppose the existence of an embodiment of resistance to God, the characters variously called the Viathan or Rahab or the serpent, 
the New Testament puts more emphasis on this motif. And it's quite appropriate that the truths about resurrection and hell and Satan should be associated with the story of Jesus dying and rising. It was Jesus dying and rising that made resurrection possible. It was these events that brought to a climax the conflict, the conflict between God and the power that resists God. And it was these events that made hell necessary for people who turned their back on what God did in Jesus and who insist on maintaining their resistance stance. The Old Testament is generally content with the idea that life is all, that this life is all we have. So why did God not let the Israelites know about resurrection? Bonhoeffer comments that once people know about eternal life, they often stop taking this life really seriously. The history of Christian attitudes provides evidence for this speculation. We need the New Testament to give us a basis for hope about resurrection life, but we need the Old Testament to remind us of the importance of this life and to give us hope for this life. Because the Old Testament invites us to live in hope. And not all its hopes were fulfilled in Jesus. Paul comments in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that whatever promises of God there are, in Jesus there is a yes. He doesn't say that all God's promises are fulfilled in Christ. He says that they're all confirmed in Christ. The fact that Jesus came, healed people, expelled demons, stilled the storm, submitted to rejection and execution, rose to new life, and overwhelmed people with God's Spirit is evidence for seeing him as the confirmation of God's promises. It's evidence for continuing to believe in God's promises and for basing your life upon them. The Old Testament invites us to live in hope. Between David's day and Jesus' day, a thousand years passed. Since Jesus' day, twice as much time has passed. And it's the Old Testament that provides us with material for living in the time when God's promises are not yet fulfilled. It's been said that Christians believe that the narrative of history and of our lives in history is moving towards the kingdom of God. John Yoder asserted that the common Christian calling is a project, a goal-oriented movement through time. Renewed recourse to the New Testament enables authentic progress, he says. There is no basis in Scripture for the conviction that the narrative of history is moving towards the kingdom of God or that history will see progress. Nor does a consideration of the narrative of history over the past 2,000 years offer any pointers in that direction. There has been no progress. That's not surprising. Jesus rather speaks of wars and rumors of wars. And the New Testament elsewhere envisages that later times will see apostasy and heresy. There's no talk in the New Testament of us extending God's kingdom or bringing in God's kingdom 
or working for God's kingdom or furthering God's kingdom. My colleague Marianne May Thompson likes to point out that more or less the only verb of which the kingdom is the object in the New Testament is enter. Bringing in the kingdom is fortunately God's business. Different parts of the scriptures hint at a grand narrative that embraces God's purpose in history. Now, the word narrative has come to be used to denote a worldview, but I use it here in the old sense of story. Out of the scriptures, one can construct a grand narrative, an overarching story of history as a whole. There's a common version of this grand narrative that leaps straight from creation to Jesus. It's the version that you get in the creeds. There's another version that comprises only creation and fall and redemption in Christ and the second coming. These versions of a grand narrative involve gross oversimplification. The grand narrative that the scriptures imply embraces creation, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David. It embraces Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia and Greece. It embraces Rome and Jesus' birth, ministry, death, and resurrection. It embraces the the outpouring of God's Spirit, the proclamation of the Gospel as far as Rome, the fall of Jerusalem, and the end still to come. One can construct such a grand narrative from the Scriptures, but what the Scriptures themselves present us with is not a grand narrative of that kind, but a series of smaller-scale narratives, what I like to call middle narratives, expositions of parts of God's story, which are not so different from what Leotard calls little narratives or local narratives. Considering the grand narrative, when 2,000 years have passed since Jesus, gives us a strangely new relationship with the middle narratives, in both Testaments, but in particular in the Old Testament. If we'd been living 20 or 30 years after Jesus, like Mark, then we might have thought that not much significance attaches to the earlier middle narratives, which is more or less the impression you get from Mark, the ones in the Old Testament. But the passing of 2,000 years gives them more significance. In the West, at least, The church lives in a context more like the one Chronicles Ezra Nehemiah addresses and describes than the context of a Christian community in New Testament times. Our context is one in which God's promises have been partially fulfilled, but in which nothing much now seems to be happening. We might even see ourselves as in a situation like that of Judah in the exile. In some parts of the world, and or during some periods of history, the church finds itself living in a context more like the one addressed in in Daniel's visions. The church in, say, Kenya in the 1950s, when it was trying to get free of British overlordship, might well find great encouragement in the middle narratives, in the middle narrative that pictures the the, the rule of superpowers as not destined to go on forever. 
while we would be unwise to live in light of one of those earlier middle narratives, as if the events related in later times had not happened, as if Jesus had not yet come, the church's greater danger is to live as if it makes no difference that we're living 2,000 years after the events that we, re- that, 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 that we read there, the events that were bringing the scriptural grand narrative to its climax in the way that they talk. To put the point more sharply, as R52 declares that God's reign has arrived, but the world did not change as much as you might have expected. Jesus declared that God's reign has arrived, but the world did not change as much as you might have expected. After all, I live in Los Angeles. And the reaction that therefore it's our job to bring in the kingdom is an unwise one. Prayer would be a better idea. The costly loss of Old Testament spirituality. The Old Testament invites us to live by faith and thus to live by remembering and to live in light of the fact that God remembers. It invites us to live in love and Jesus invites us to see its teaching as an exposition of what love looks like. It invites us to live in hope and to rejoice in the fact that the future does not depend on us. It depends on God. You can say amen again if you like. Let's pray. Gracious and powerful God, you are the one who has earned our trust and we put our faith, our trust in you. You are the one who has modeled love and earned our love. And we declare our love to you. You are the one who has given us a basis for hope. Not least in that resurrection of Jesus. And we declare our commitment to being people of hope. In Jesus' name. Amen.